Right, and good morning. Thank you to the worship team for leading us in worship. Welcome once again to GICF, for those of you who are here, uh, for those who are watching online as well. Uh, we are, today we'll be continuing through our series of sermons in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we'd like to encourage everybody to you know, get their Bibles open, be it an electronic or physical one, to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be covering the first 10 verses. Um, I will be reading uh, you know, from the NIV, uh, for those of you who have electronic Bibles, you can just sync it to that if you prefer to actually match what I'm reading. <clears throat> As I've mentioned when I've preached previously, I generally don't prepare slides. I think the most important thing for you is to actually be looking into the Bibles to you know, check and see that what I say is actually in line with the Bible. Um, you know, if you're using an electronic device, do you know, set it to flight mode, you know, make sure you don't get disturbed by messages, you know, social media updates, what you are intending to have for lunch later on. Um, during my initial years as a Christian, I was privileged to hear John Stott preach in person. And the most important habit he taught me was what he said, you know, before he preached. I would find it most helpful if you can open your Bibles to the passage that was just read. And as I preached the word, that you would look down into your Bibles and check that what I'm saying is correct. If you think that I've said something wrong, on your way out, come, come by, shake my hand, tell me. I promise you we'll find time in our diaries to sit down together, open our Bibles, and try and understand what the Lord is trying to say to His people. So I strongly encourage you to do that. Now hopefully you have Ephesians 2 in front of you, and let me start. Now, let me begin by asking you a question. You know, what gets you emotional? You know, what stirs your heart? What's, what, what, I, what gets you passionate? You know, what topics are they? You know, we are in, entering into election season. You know, politics certainly fires people up. Perhaps it's the environment or some other social cause. Perhaps something more personal, you know, weddings, the birth of a child, funerals. But when we get emotional about something, our actions are affected as well. You know, I used to live in London, and when I got there, there was one thing that got everybody really emotional. There was football. I refused to call it soccer. This was especially true in a World Cup year. Everywhere you went in England, you know, if it's a World Cup year, there'll be England flags, the cross of St. George. Everybody will be wearing the shirt. There'll be non-stop -talk, non talk about football is coming home. They'll always be talking and showing the 1966 final still to this day and age. And that emotion for football drives them to do crazy things. Most English people will just drop anything and everything to just watch the games. You know, during the 2002 World Cup, I was, I was still in university and we had our exams. And one of our exams intersected with an English game. And all my, and my English peers, they actually came into the exam 30 minutes late. They sacrificed 30 minutes to watch the English, England game finish before they came in. Now, those of you who have kids here, what would you do to your kid if they told you that? <laughs> but it's incredible, isn't it, that when you're passionate about something, you're moved in your heart about something, what you would do for it. And as we continue to our journey through Ephesians, you know, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we're going to be talking about grace. Now, when I say that word grace, you know, how does that make you feel? 
You know, what, does it stir anything in your heart? Even in the past three weeks when we've been going through Ephesians 1, you know, has something been stirred in your heart or has it just been a dry few weeks drudging through a particularly dense theological text? Good food for the brain, but nothing for the heart. Now, I didn't actually volunteer for, to teach this passage. Somebody actually came up to me and they thought I would be good at this because it's a, you know, it's a theological passage and they volunteered me. And you know, it felt implied that you know, it's a dry, dry, dusty theological text, so me, the dry, dusty academic, can go and teach it. In many ways, they are right. You know, I felt unequal to this task of teaching this passage, partly because I'm not a very emotional person. You, know, you can ask my wife about this if you don't believe me. I get a regular complaint every year on my birthday. Uh, it happens every year after she gives me my birthday present because I get the present, I open it, and I kind of go, oh, okay, thanks. And she'll be like, why are you so flat? You know, why aren't you happy? You know, it's like there's no reaction about it. But Paul has been really emotional here in Ephesians so far. You know, just look back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. You know, how does it sound in your head when you read this passage? Or even too often when it's being read out in church, it probably sounds something like, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But that's not right. In many ways, I'm like a terrible person to attempt this. You know, I, I, I put myself to sleep when I read bedtime stories to my kids. So. But you know, it should be sound, sound something closer to this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In many ways, if the whole of Ephesians was read properly, you probably wouldn't even need me preaching about it because it would just, the meaning would just seep through so much because Paul is just bursting with emotion. He can't keep the excitement in. Not when he's praising God in verses 1 through to 14, nor when he's giving thanks for the Ephesians from verse 15 to 23 in chapter 1. And now he moves on and he starts to explain why he's so excited here in our passage. But if we don't catch that emotion, that passion in our hearts about God's grace, you know, we will struggle to live on what he talks about the rest of the book of Ephesians, which is you know, how our lives are supposed to be. What are we supposed to do with our lives? So now let me do a quick prayer. Let's read the passage together. And as I read it, I hope I do it justice as well. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, that we are free here to gather freely, to listen to your word, to worship together. Lord, I pray that as we read your word here in Ephesians, as we learn more about your grace, that it would, it would cut us to the heart as well, and that we would leave here transformed people ready to do good works. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read the, our passage today. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work at, in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, in just having gone through the text, we can see that the key word in this passage is grace. You know, I previously mentioned that I hope to write, you know, there's a series of words I would like to write a book on. This is definitely one of them. But it's because the word grace itself is a word that is often used by Christians, but I think it's been poorly understood and misused. I generally tend to think when Christian people talk to me about grace that they actually mean mercy. And in order for, for me to explain grace properly, it's actually I have to explain three words together. And these three words are relevant to our passage as well. The words are justice, mercy, and grace. And we need to understand them in relation to each other and in that order. Only when you understand justice can you then understand mercy. Only on fully understanding justice and mercy, then you can see the majesty of grace. Now, understanding these words is not just understanding it in our minds, but in our hearts as well. In simple terms, to understand it intellectually, because we have to start somewhere, we can put their meanings in this way. Justice means you get what you deserve. If you did something wrong, you get punished. Simple, right? Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. If you do something wrong, you don't get punished. I think that's easily understood as well. But grace means you get what you don't deserve. So despite doing something wrong, you get rewarded. Now let me use an illustration from the story of uh, Les Miserables, which is a very famous movie and musical now. Uh, apologies to any French, fluent French speakers. I know I butchered the pronunciation of that, but put up with me, please. Credit to Rico Tyson Christianity Explored for this illustration as well. Les Miserables is a story about Jean Valjean, who is convicted for stealing bread, and he is sent to prison. And when he gets out of prison, it's stamped on his KTP that he is an ex-convict. You know, he stole and was sent to prison. And he struggles to find any accommodation or, food or work. And as the story goes, he ends up sleeping rough and is found by the local bishop. The bishop takes Jean Valjean in, gives him a good meal, a hot bath, and a place to spend the night. In the middle of the night, Valjean gets up and starts stealing the silver that he used for his meal earlier. But he makes such a noise, looting the silver, that the bishop gets up. He goes out to check, finds Valjean. Valjean knocks him out and flees into the night. The next day, Valjean is stopped by the police and they recognize the silver that he had and they take him back to the bishop. Now, at this point, the bishop has three choices. Justice, mercy, and grace. In the path of justice, it's obvious. All the bishop has to do is just state the facts. Yes, I, was, I showed kindness to this person, but he stole, you know, Jean Valjean stole from me. Do with him as the law requires. And Valjean would have been sent back to prison for the rest of his life and probably die there. In the path of mercy, the bishop could insist on not pressing charges. Yes, Valjean stole from me, 
But, you know, thanks to you police officers, I got my stuff back. No harm, no fault. I let him go. So, but mercy would have been meaningless if there wasn't justice, if there wasn't that punishment of him going back to prison. So we need to first understand what justice demands and then mercy has meaning. And this is what most Christians think of when they think of how God is towards them. Jesus Christ sent his son to die for our sins, the forgiveness of our sins. But in the actual story, as in the gospel, it goes further than that. The bishop shows grace to Valjean. On seeing Valjean, he cries out, Valjean, why did you leave in such a rush? You left the best behind. Turning around, shouting to his mate, he said, bring the silver candlesticks. The police were left confused and they left Valjean with the bishop. Valjean himself was as perplexed as the police. And on giving him the silver candlestick, the bishop says these words to him. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. So Valjean, who has stolen from the bishop, gets even more. That is grace. It seems mad, crazy, outrageous. You know, consider this, unfortunately common, that your helper, your pambantu at home, steals from you. But not only do you let them off, but you give them even more as they were leaving. How many of you would choose to do that? How many of you on hearing somebody choosing to do that will not say that those people were crazy or gila? I mean, the, ob the objection is obvious. If you show grace to someone, they could abuse it. I agree. Valjean could have taken all the silver and continued on in evil. But it isn't really grace if it can't be abused. Grace always appears outrageous and risky. However, receiving grace is not without consequence. Valjean's life is completely changed by, the, by grace all the way to the end of it. And at the end of it, he will die by the light of those silver candlesticks, a transformed person. To any who accept God's grace, they will be changed. They will become the person who God intended. Through the ages, Christians who truly understand in their hearts and mind about God's grace are moved to do outrageous sacrificial service for others, even to the point of risking their lives, sometimes including those that they love, and even sometimes also to the point of sacrificing it. This is why this passage is so important. Paul is explaining about God's grace. And Paul goes through it in the same order as well. In verse 1, under justice, we were dead. Verse 4, under mercy, we were made alive. Verse 6, under grace, we are seated with Christ in heaven. And why did God do this? In verse 7, to show the incomparable richness of his grace. And then having understood grace, it functions as the engine in us to drive us in, verse 10, to do good works, which Paul will then go on to expand on in the rest of Ephesians. But let's, let's look at this step by step. So first, justice. I'm going to read again from verses 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by 
nature objects of wrath. Paul's language here is clear. We were dead in verse 1. Why? Because we followed the ways of this world and we were under the rule of the devil in verse 2. Jesus himself alluded to this in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. In fact, no one can enter the strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he ties up, first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. The strong man is the devil, and we are his possessions. Jesus had to de defeat the devil before he could rescue us from him. Now, note that Paul has shifted from using you in verse 1 to us or we in verse 2 onwards. There is no difference here between Paul, a Jewish believer, or the Ephesians who are generally Gentile believers. Neither will there be a difference whether you were raised in a loving Christian family or you grew up in a non-Christian one. All of this is true for all. Now look again at verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Now, you might sit there and think that this doesn't sound like you before you became a Christian, that you don't recognize this as a valid description. You know, I, I sympathize with that. I feel like the most difficult thing I have to do when I do the youth ministry in Verity is to convince the teens that they are sinners, that they are deserving of death, that they are dead as the passage says here. When we read these verses describing sinful people, we tend to think of, you know, gluttons, drunkards, womanizers, adulterers, greedy, outright evil people, you know, people committing crimes against humanity, people who have gross or blatant sins. But the biblical definition of good and evil isn't just a moral one, it isn't what the world uses. In simplistic terms, as we see here, it's a binary choice. Either you are under God's rule or you are under the devil's rule. There is no middle ground. You have to be in one of these camps. Our problem as shown by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that God's standards are way higher than we can ever imagine or achieve. Now, in the recent Genesis series that we had here at GICF, we saw what happened in the garden during the events of the fall. It can be during the events of the fall, you know, the question that was faced by Adam and Eve could have been summed up like this Would they live under God's rule or not? They, Adam and Eve, in listening to the devil, decided not to live under God's rule. They wanted to decide right and wrong for themselves. That is original sin, what we are all guilty of. We are all rebels. We want God off his throne making the rules for us and ourselves in his place making the rules for ourselves. And the just sentence for that rebellion is death. And that's the problem in the world right now, that people decide for themselves what is right and wrong and not bow the knee and accept what God has decreed. Verse 2 points out that when we do that, the person who sits on the throne of our lives is not us, but actually the devil. And the devil is happy for us to do what we want as long as it's not what God wants. So even the good things in life, marriage, family, helping others, ministry in church, or whatever else you can think of, they can become corrupted. As C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce, it is a stronger angel, therefore when it falls, a fiercer devil. Any of these good things in life can become an idol for us. So sinful people who are spiritually dead can appear to be good, upright people in the eyes of the world or even the church. They may have good marriages, good jobs, working to improve society. Their kids are well brought up, they're generous with their money, sacrificial with their time. 
And the list goes on. So if we do it, in the words of Frank Sinatra, did it my way, we are dead. And there is nothing we can do to fix it with God. Until we understand that in our hearts and minds, we deserve to die. We won't see... If we don't understand that we deserve to die, we won't see how great God's mercy or grace is. If you only think that you, you know, there are small things in your life that need fixing, a, a problem with alcohol, an addiction to smoking, or gluttony, or a bit of greed, then you won't be as grateful for God's mercy or grace. When we look at the cross, when we look at any picture of the cross, and do not realize that it should have been us on that cross, we don't understand the truth of these verses. We deserve death for our rebellion. The just sentence is death. So under justice, we were dead. But let's carry on. Verse 4 to 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So let's dig deeper. If we are dead... What can we do to bring ourselves alive? The short answer is nothing. Despite the advances of modern science, you know, death is final. Those of you who have attended you know, funerals, you'll know the truth of this. When that coffin is finally closed, when it's lowered into the ground or sent into the furnace for cremation, it is final. There is no return under mere human power. But look at what the passage is saying, that despite the fact that we were dead, God has raised us back to life. Now look back at chapter 1 at verse 19. Here it talks about the incomparable power of God working in us. And in verse 20, it describes what this power can do. It raised Christ from the dead. And since it raised Christ from the dead, it can also raise us from the dead. It takes God's incomparable power working in us to bring us from death to life. At the cross, Jesus took the death we deserved. He swapped places with us. Christ took our place on the cross, took on the death we deserve so that we may live. However, there is an important detail here. Look down at the first part of verse 5. It says that this happens when we were dead in our transgression. So Paul is clear. Before you turn back in any way, try to do something good. God made you alive through his incomparable power. We were powerless in our deaths, but God's incomparable power raised us while we were were dead in our sins. And for many, this is a stumbling block. You know, one of my closest non-Christian friends, you know, I I speak frequently with him about Christianity. And, you know, he said to me once that when he died and he had to face God on a judgment seat, if he did anything wrong, he'll make it right. He'll pay for it himself. And the sad truth is, he will. He had too much pride to accept that God had to pay for his mistakes. And pride gets in the way for a lot of people, accepting God's mercy, you know, much less grace. You you know, you can test this out. You know, when you're next out for a meal with somebody else, try and pay for their meal. You know, see how easily it is, easy it is to try and pay for somebody's meal. So, under justice, we were dead under mercy, raised to life. But this is for many where they stop. They think the gospel is just to forgive someone their wrongs. But as the bishop in the story of Les Miserables, or Paul and the gospel here, it doesn't stop there. It actually carries on. 
So verse 6 to 9. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So here under grace we have been seated with Christ in heaven. Just stop and think about that for a moment. We are rebels. We wanted to get God off his throne and we deserve death for that. So now not only are we forgiven, so the death sentence has been commuted, but God decides to seat us on that throne with Jesus Christ instead. It's madness, isn't it? You know, when I watched the first Narnia film, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, in the cinema, I was in a cinema. For, you know, this is a children's tale written by C.S. Lewis. And it's an allegory. And, you know, for those of you who are unfamiliar, it's the story of four children who are siblings who end up through a magical wardrobe into the land of Narnia. But one of the children, Edmund, betrays his siblings for Turkish delight, for sweeties. And in the end, for Edmund to be safe, Aslan the lion, the Jesus figure, dies in his place. And as the story goes, evil is conquered. But at the end of the movie, the four children are brought to Caer Paravel, where there are four thrones where they would be enthroned as the kings and queens of Narnia. And as they were taking their thrones in the movie, the titles are announced as well. And Edmund is named Edmund the Just. And at that moment, somebody in the back of the theater behind me shouted out in indignation, The Just! He was the bloody traitor! That chap in the theater got it right. He actually understood it. He understood that Edmund was shown grace. Despite being the traitor, Edmund was being rewarded. He was not given a lesser honor than his siblings. Grace is jaw-dropping and outrageous. If we understood it, it always moves our heart. It always feels outrageous. You cannot just sit there and think, oh, that's very interesting, and not be stirred in your heart by it. You know, beware if your heart is not moved by grace. But the details here are important. Look down at, at the verses we've covered so far. All of this is in the past tense. This is not something that is yet to happen to Christians, but this is something that has already happened. Remember, this happened also according to verse 5, when we were dead in our transgressions. We don't need anything to be seated in heaven with Christ. The incomparable riches of God's grace has seen to it. It is not that Jesus Christ died for our sins and now we have to work to prove ourselves worthy of being the sons of God. No. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. It is God's incomparably great power that raised Christ from the dead that will raise us from death to life and will seat us in heaven with him. This is why in the church everyone is equal. This is the basis of the unity of the church. Look down in verse 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We brought nothing to our salvation but our sin. This is why this is good news. This is why the gospel is good news and why Paul can't help but praise God. You know, often somebody, will, some smart aleck will come up to me and ask, you know, could you live a sinful life, repent at the last moment and be saved? My answer is based on this passage, Yes. And actually, there is an example of this in Luke's gospel, the thief on the cross alongside Jesus. He lived a life of sin, 
a, sin, you know, a sinful life so heinous that the Romans decided that he deserved the death sentence. And at the last moment of his life, he looks to Jesus and says, remember me. And Jesus turns and says to him, today with me, paradise. But grace is incredibly difficult for people to accept. We rather not hear someone pay for us or give us something we did not earn. And what this passage is describing should be giving us the ultimate case of imposter syndrome. You know, when I, I used to tease a lot of the younger Christians I mentored about, you know, about grace, is that every time we ate together, I would actually pay for the meal. And they would struggle with it. They would like to pay, pay their share or something like that. And I would just snipe back at them and said, if it's so difficult for me to accept, you know, for you to accept that I'm paying for your meal, how did you accept the Son of God dying for your sins? That's significantly more difficult. Now, I'm aware that there's protest that such free, unmerited grace is open to abuse. Yes, that there is this need about repentance and doing good works in relation to our salvation. But look at these verses. And it doesn't say that. It's not me saying it. This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians here. It's what the Bible says. It is outrageous. It is madness. It should move us to shout for joy, to cry in despair, to shout out in indignation. But grace always triggers an emotional response. But why does God do this? Look down to verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, the purpose of God saving us and seating us in heaven is so that the incomparable riches of His grace can be made known. It is not ultimately about loving us and saving us, although that does happen. It is the sake for God's glory and His name that He has done this. When we tell our story, our testimony through words or deeds about how we were saved or why we do what we do, the focus should always be this, on the incomparable riches of God's grace shown through us through Jesus Christ. It should not be about how we were bad and then we are, how good we are now. It is, our testimony should never be about us. It should be about God's incomparable grace. You know, in London, I attended for a, a period of time a street preaching group that would go out to Speaker's Corner. Speaker's Corner is uh, one corner of Hyde Park in London where you could get up there these days on step ladders and talk about anything you want. Politics, war, uh, environmental issues, but you know there are often a lot of Christians and Muslims there as well. And this group used to go out there and engage with the Muslims. In the preparation meetings beforehand, we were trained in all sorts of stuff. Apologetics, where you, you defend the Christian faith. Polemics, where you question, where you attack and question the basis of the faith of the other side. Authenticity of the Bible. You know, the list goes on. But a key message during the training was this, that remembering that the ultimate goal in all our interaction is to bring these people to meet Jesus Christ off the pages of the Bible. Because if they don't meet Jesus, if they don't come to know Jesus, they are not going to be saved. So everything we do should always be pointing Jesus to, the you know, to Jesus and the incomparable riches of his grace. One other thing about pointing people to God's grace is that it generally means we can't look good. I often tell people this, you know, you can't make yourself look good and God look good at the same time. The only way God's grace is shown to be incomparably rich is because we were utterly evil, sinful, and undeserving. 
if we look like good people, then people won't see that God's grace is incredible. They'll just somehow think that, hey, yeah, these are good people. Of course God will choose to save them. We always need to show people through words or our lives that we are just as sinful as they are, as much in need of God's mercy and grace as they are, that we are just one beggar pointing to another where to find bread. Then the incomparable riches of the grace of the one who grants us the bread will be seen. So we have seen that under justice we were dead in sin, under mercy raised to life, under grace seated with Christ in heaven, and all of this so that the incomparable riches of his grace might be made known. But you might ask, how are we supposed to react? Let's look at verse 10. It reads, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So since we have been saved by grace, we are to do good works. As we continue in the series in Ephesians, we'll see Paul spell those out, what those good works are, and the other preachers will be unpacking those. I will not be going into much detail here. But why do good works? Mankind, as we saw earlier in the series, is in the earlier series in Genesis, is, was created in the image of God. We are to bear God's image. You can also think of you know, people that, that we are supposed to be mirrors, that we are supposed to reflect God's image, God's grace out to the, to the world. Now, even a wedding ceremony, when, and you know, most of us would think that a wedding is really about the couple, but Paul, in chapter 5, when he talks about this, says that actually, no, it's, it's just a mirror. It's just reflecting the real mystery and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus and his bride, the church. The best Christian marriage will show people a mere shadow of the incomparable riches of God's grace towards his bride, the church. Now, bear in mind, these good works do not earn our salvation that we get through grace. The pattern of the Bible is that we do good because God saves us first. So even in the Ten Commandments, it does not actually begin with the first commandment. It actually starts with this line in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So God has rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. Therefore, this is how I expect you to live as God's people. Don't get it the other way around. That we have to do good works before God will show grace to us. Well, firstly, that's not grace. It's a wage because we will have earned it in that, under that scenario. Second, that will land you in the same place as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the Gospels. Don't get it mixed up. God saves us by grace. Therefore, we do good works. It is out of a wellspring of gratefulness for God's grace that good works should come from. But this needs a true understanding of how much grace was shown to us. The more we understand about God's grace, the more powerful the engine inside us to drive us to do good works. And we deepen our understanding of grace by, increase, by increasing our understanding as well of the depths of our own sin and evil. Then our understanding of grace becomes richer. It transforms us more and enables us to show grace to other people as well. And this is why Paul prays, for the Ephesians, that they come to know this truth more and more. Back in chapter 1, and he'll continue to do so again in chapter 3. So in summary, we have seen that under justice, we were dead in sin. Under mercy, we have been raised to life. Under grace, seated with Christ in heaven. 
all for the sake of making known the incomparable riches of God's grace. And our correct response is to do good works so that God's grace can be made known. But you cannot get this the wrong way around. The church in Ephesus would later be warned in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, that they, while they did good works, when you go read all the, the, seven, the letters to the seven churches in Revelations, the Ephesians were like the best. They did everything right. But then they were accused of having forsaken their first love. Yes, it is important for us to repent, to turn away from sin, to believe, to defend the truth, to do good works in our lives. But what is happening in our hearts is far more important. If we don't do it because we are in love with God, because of the grace that he has shown us, we, like the Ephesians, will be, be removed from the presence of God. But let me end with this, what Jesus pointed out in Luke 7. He who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. This is because those who know they are forgiven much knows more deeply the riches of God's grace. You know, let us return to the story of Jean Valjean. His life was transformed by an act of grace shown to him by the bishop and his, mar and his life marked by good works from there on. But those good acts did not earn him the grace he experienced, but the consequence of his understanding and accepting the grace that was shown to him. And that is what transforms Valjean. So for us too, we need to understand our own bankruptcy, to humble ourselves to receive God's grace and to be transformed by it. Now, even for me, this is not a simple thing. You know, it's, it's something that really has to cut you to the heart. Years ago, in, back in 2004, I did a mission trip to Russia. I, it was to work with, uh, you know, underprivileged children, some from orphanages, others from struggling backgrounds. You know, I went with my church and I had a group of eight kids that were assigned to me. They were really nice, sweet kids, you know, one of the, you know, really well-behaved 11-year-old boys. Even my kids aren't as well-behaved. You know, during the break time, these kids would be cleaning up the rooms, mopping it twice a day. Um, you know, lights out was like, you know, five minutes, everybody's in bed and stuff like that, quiet. It was like, it was like a minor miracle. And these kids were sweet, you know. Um, whenever we had a meal after a couple of days, the kids kind of worked out that generally I have, I, don't, I have tea, but I don't have any sugar with it. But every now and then I would have some sugar and they asked me about it. And I said, like, you know, when you're being naughty and stressing me out, I, need the, you know, I just need the sugar. That's, that's how I cope. And they would know, you know, they would know that they were, be, you know, and on the subsequent days when they were well-behaved, it was fine, but there were a couple of days when they pushed their luck with me. You know, by the time I sat down at the table in the dining hall, there would be that pot of sugar next to my tea. They knew. But, you know, I, I, I used to, um, I opted to pray for them every night. So every night after lights out every, and everything was quiet, I would kneel down by each of their beds and pray. And there was one night, right at the, you know, I, I was praying for the last kid. His name is Daniel. Uh, he was really, really a quiet kid. And if you just imagine it this way, I, I decided to pray that I would see, I would see this boy as God saw him, that I would that I could love him as God would love him. And if, like I said, 
earlier, that if you imagine people to be a mirror, in that instant I could see how that mirror has been damaged by the terrible abuse that this boy had gone to, that I could see every single place that he had been hit, where that mirror had been seriously fractured. It was agonizing to see. I, the next thing I was aware of, I was already outside the room, sobbing, difficult to get myself under control. But I eventually did, and after the kind of pain and horror faded slightly, I got really angry. You know, he's a sweet 11-year-old boy, you know, and somebody, you know, people have, someone has abused him so, so terribly. And I, the longer I sat there, the more angry I got. I just remember in a kind of screaming in rage inside saying, someone must pay for this. And then I heard the Holy Spirit whisper to me, someone has paid. Even for whoever that horrible person was, the promise of salvation, of grace, are yes and amen in Christ. That is how far, you know, that is how far God's grace will reach out. No one is beyond its reach. Now, I pray that, you know, this time it will, you know, that this sermon, as we've gone through this passage, it will give you a small glimpse of that, of the incomparable riches of God's grace. Now, let me close us in prayer. Dear God, we are rebels who deserve to die. But you, in your great mercy, raised us to life. In your grace, you have seated us in heaven, and that is open to all. And we are all sinners. No one is better or worse than anybody else here. And cut us to our hearts, Lord. Convict us of our sin, that we may grow in our appreciation and gratefulness for your grace, that we will be transformed so that we can live our lives to do the good works that you have called to us to show this grace to others as well. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.